0: What's this? Got a little device thing. Don't think I need a tuner for this part of the service. So, do you know him? We have done real, restorer, teacher, king, friend, revolutionary and caller... And today we're looking at, do you know him? Passionate. Well, uh, maybe this one surprises you a bit. Maybe you're not even sure it's entirely appropriate. But I hope that uh, at the end of this morning, um, perhaps it will make a little bit more sense. I kind of hope so, because clearly I haven't done my job very well if, uh, if it doesn't. Do you know him? Jesus, the passionate one. As I uh, was preparing this week, um, I came across a painting, which all of us will know well. And, uh, and it just kind of struck with me um, in the context of what we're dealing with at the moment in the world. And this is the painting. It's The Scream by Eduard Munch, or Munk. or whatever. My Norwegian's not particularly excellent, so I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce this surname. But anyway, that's who it is. And... Um, The thing that struck me about it, amongst other things, was when it was painted. Now, I don't know what you think about when it was painted, but I imagine that it was being painted some point around the bit between the First and Second World Wars that kind of thing. It sort of expresses something to me of that era and it's sort of modern art, so that's kind of what I thought. So I looked it up and I was really surprised to see that it was painted in 1893. Now I know there were lots of wars in the 19th century, but I was genuinely surprised that it was painted that early and that it looks like this because this is quite a modern depiction of something that we experience, that angst that's talked about by the existentialists. So I researched a little bit more about this painting. And this is what he said about the reason for painting it. He says, One evening I was walking along a path. The city was on one side and the fjord below. I felt tired and ill. I stopped and looked out over the fjord. The sun was setting and the clouds turning blood red. I sensed a scream passing through nature. It seemed to me that I heard the scream. I painted this picture, painted the clouds as actual blood, the colour shrieked, this became the scream. And I think often in the depictions of this painting, they just take the bit with the person screaming and you don't see all of the context that was so significant for Munk as he came to paint this painting, his own illness and how he was feeling, the environment that he was in, somehow it all came together. I've never really liked this painting, but somehow this week, it connected with my heart. And it reminded me of those words in Romans chapter 8, which Paul writes and he says, All creation groans in expectation, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And there's something real about that for us at this time, isn't there? There's something about the scream that runs through nature as the ice caps are melting and as fracking takes over big swathes of our countryside and the Amazon rainforest is cut down and we see the devastation that is coming through that. There is something of that within nature. But more than that, in our world at this time with its anxiety and its fear and constant death and famine and war and conflict, there is something of a scream that runs through the reality of our world at this point. I feel a bit bad saying this after really nice worship. (laughs) But this is the reality that we worship within, isn't it? That there is something of that in our context, that gut-wrenching, Emotional response to what we face and see and experience in front of us. I guess we know what that gut-wrenching feeling is like. You know that feeling when you need to make a rapid dash to the nearest facilities? When perhaps you are actually physically sick or you collapse? that hollowness, that twisted insides feeling when you've been punched in the stomach, when the world stands still. I guess that you know what that feels like, most of you. And maybe it happened when Brexit happened. I guess it depends which way you voted. I'll not ask for show hands. But the morning after, the night before, for many people, Oh, I nearly said something shouldn't I shouldn't Um was that kind of emotion. Or maybe it was when Donald Trump was uh, appointed as new president of the U.S. And he went, really? Or maybe it was, well, I don't know about this election. Who knows anything about this election? But maybe it was the one before. Or another one where you felt that in the morning when you saw the news. Maybe it was the Manchester bombing. Or maybe it was the London attacks. Or maybe a bit closer to home, it was a physical diagnosis that you or someone that you love has experienced. Or maybe it was an emotional upheaval that you found yourself in the middle of. Or it was fear. Or anxiety. And you had that gut-wrenching emotional response where everything about you, everything within you, every part of you was consumed with the emotion that you were feeling in that moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have to honestly say at the 9.15, I looked out at the congregation in front of me and I just thought I can scarcely talk about some of these things because I could see on their faces and I knew some of their stories. And that's true for you guys as well, but there's more of you so I can sort of scan. (laughs) You know, we know that feeling, don't we? Whether it's the anxiety that fills your whole being as a massive Yorkshire spider runs across your front room. To the feeling that you have that most of us have probably experienced one time or other where you cannot find your child. You are in Boundary Mill, your child is gone. (laughs) to finding yourself in the consultant's office, to hear something you don't want to hear, or in a counsellor's office dealing with something that you never thought that you would have to deal with. That gut-wrenching feeling that consumes us. I know that you like to learn a bit of Greek as we go through. And those of you who've been in the church for a while should have quite a good vocabulary now. (laughs) But let's talk for a moment about what the Greek word is for gut-wrenching, because it's clearly a very key word. So the Greek word for gut-wrenching is is this, because that's what gut-wrenching feels like, isn't it? You got that? Spalagnizomai. I mean, you can have a few gutturals in the middle, just to make it a bit more entertaining if you want to, but... Splagnitzomai. So we're, we're going to say that together because this is a learning experience, okay? One, two, three. my. I mean, you can really impress somebody now, can't you? Splagnitzomai. It's just a fab word, isn't it? I learned this word when I was a young teenager, which says an awful lot about me, in a sermon. <laughs> and when I was listening, I was going, that is fab, I'm going to have that one. Comes from the Greek word for entrails, vital organs, stomach, heart, lungs, spleen, liver, and kidneys. Get all that? The insides. It's that deep feeling in the gut. The deepest of all feelings, the deepest of all human emotions, the kind of feeling that is at least as much physical as ever its intellectual It's that feeling. The Greeks believed that the seat of human emotions was the gut rather than the heart. I don't suggest that you say to the person that you love most in the world, I I love you with all my entrails, but that's the kind of thing that they would have done. (laughs) Spalagnizomai, gut-wrenching. The key thing this morning is that this is the word that's used of Jesus and his emotions. This is the word that's used of Jesus and his emotions. I wonder, is that how we think of Jesus? When we feel like that, do we feel that Jesus also felt like that? I found something this week written by Dorothy Sayers and she had the capacity to just cut through all the rubbish and say things as they really were. And this is one of the things that she says, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? Powerful words, frightening, challenging. Have we done that? Have we paired the claws of the Lion of Judah? Have we made him a pussycat? Have we turned him from a a majestic lion to a domesticated pet? Have we tamed him, watered him down, edited Jesus? Have we done that? Here's another quote I found this week. Many depictions of Jesus show him as a character who coolly and calmly floats above the grit and grime of human existence. He doesn't hurt, he doesn't fear, he doesn't laugh, and most tragically, he doesn't love very passionately. He seems not to feel at all. You know, I chose the poorest, weakest, flattest picture of Jesus that I could find on the internet. Is that what we've done? Have we made him two-dimensional, flat, grey, a lighter shade of beige? Have we done that? This is not our Jesus. It's not our Jesus. He doesn't float above. He doesn't float above. He is in. In. The whole point of the incarnation is that he is in, in it, with us, in the dirt, in the grit and grime. He is in it with us. He is fully human. He feels, and he feels passionately. Splagnizomai, don't forget it. It's often translated in our versions as compassion. And we'll just move sideways from Greek to Latin for a moment. Compassion comes from the Latin word to feel with, to suffer with. Well, that's quite good, but it's not quite the grit of the Greek, is it? But often in our Bibles, it's translated, well, compassion, which we've kind of softened in the main. Sometimes it's took pity on. Well, that's really quite poor, isn't it? to feel sorry for and we don't get it that this is this gut-wrenching feeling that Jesus has when it says that he feels compassion. This word is used 12 times in the New Testament. Eight of those describe the emotions of Jesus. Well maybe you're just nodding in agreement. Most of you are sort of semi-smiling which is quite encouraging Um, but I just want for a moment to kind of go off at a little bit of a tangent, if that's okay with you, because this is actually one of the biggest theological issues that has ever been wrestled with in the history of the church. And uh, the issue is this, that was the best I could come up with, um, is God impassable or is he passable, which is passionate, same derivation there. Now I'm going to spend a couple of minutes thinking about this. If you want to sleep quietly, no snoring, you may do that and I will tell you when to wake up again. But it's actually really quite important and and quite critical to the way that we understand who God is and our faith. So if you can stay awake, that would be encouraging. But if you want to sleep, this is your moment. So to be passable is to be capable of feeling, especially suffering, to be susceptible to emotion. That's what being passable means. When theologians speak about God's passibility versus his impassibility, they're referring to his freedom to respond emotionally versus a perceived lack of empathy for his creatures. Some theologians see the impassibility of God, the fact that he doesn't get impacted by emotion, as one of his key attributes. It's kind of right up there with immutability, which means he can't change. Or omniscience, which means that he knows everything. Or the fact that he's eternal and goes on forever. They see God as apathetic. That doesn't mean apathetic like we use it, like kind of lazy. But not pathetic. Apathetic meaning that um, he exists above human emotion, that he remains untouched by it. They see that as really key, that God is like that. You're bored, aren't you are bored Andy. others see god's passability the opposite as one of those key essential elements they insist that god really does suffer with us and that's absolutely essential are you still with me right that's one slide there's only one more to go right so what's the scriptural implications for that because that's the important thing isn't it You see, many scripture passages seem to indicate that God does respond emotionally to the events on earth. God feels compassion for his people. He feels wrath against sin. He's pained by our rejection to his love and his grace. He feels those things. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is in John chapter 11, which says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. It talks in Hebrews about he is a high priest who empathises with us in our weaknesses. He's walked through our life so he understands, he gets it when we feel like that. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus being a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. The key thing here is that God is transcendent and we mustn't forget that. We mustn't make him just our pal. He is transcendent. He is all-knowing, all-seeing, eternal. He is a mystery, but he is not aloof from us. God is love, reveals a passionate God who listens to our cries for help, shows compassion, and knows our suffering firsthand. The doctrine of the passability of God does not teach us that God is fickle. He is not like, thankfully, a big version of me or you. He is not worse because he's got out of bed the wrong side or because he hasn't eaten or because he hasn't had enough sleep. He is not fickle. He does not have mood swings. He is not someone who cannot control his responses. God is never a victim of circumstance. He's not that kind of emotional. He's not like a big version of us. All right, It's really important that we get that. The doctrine of passability does teach that God is emotionally invested in his creation. He is involved with us because he cares about us. I think that's really important. It's really important that we get that that he is not sat on a cloud. He is not wound up the universe and let go. He is involved in our suffering, in our emotion, in our experience, in the grit and grime of our lives. He is involved. So anyone who's asleep, moment to wake up. Back to those eight times when the word splagnizomai is used about Jesus. Compassion, deep sympathy, sorrow for another. And here's another key thing about this word. It's accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. It's not just the feeling, but a feeling that motivates to do something about it. That's the word that we're talking about. So, Bible. Thanks, Peter. (laughs) So we're just going to have a brief look at those times when we see Jesus. This word used about Jesus. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. Go quite speedily, I guess. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had splagnizomai on them and healed their sick. Move forward to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34. Jesus had splagnizomai on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And Mark chapter 1 and verse 41 says, a man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, with splagnizomai. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. That's what we see, isn't it? Jesus was filled with this gut-wrenching feeling at what he saw in front of him. The disease and illness that's ravaged the world that God has made. And in these contexts, Bringing in the kingdom of heaven, he reached out, touched them, and they were healed. His healing is a response to the compassion within his heart. Mark chapter 15, sorry, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 32. And it's the same again in Mark, so we'll just read the one. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I've, I have I for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on their way. Here's all these people with Jesus. For three whole days they haven't had anything to eat. They've been listening to him, walking with him, watching the miracles that he's done, learning. Jesus says they are really hungry. A lot of growling guts around him at that point. And he has this gut-wrenching emotional response to them. They are hungry. We cannot send them home. They may collapse on the way. And he organizes for them to be fed. Similar story to the five loaves and two fishes, but with different numbers of loaves and fish. And then Matthew chapter 18. And here we have a story. The parable of the unmerciful servant, which I guess we're familiar with king wants to settle his accounts. One of his servants can't pay. He says, I'm going to have to sell my wife and my children everything I have to pay you back. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity, had spalagnizami on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. And The implication of this story is this is what God does for us because God does it for us. We should do it to other people. God's compassion, his response to our debt, our indebtedness, our sin, is to have compassion and to forgive us. Mark chapter 6, just to keep you awake, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without shepherd So he began teaching them many things. That's an interesting response there, isn't it? When he saw the crowds, he saw that they were all over the place in their minds and their understanding. He had compassion on them and he taught them. He taught them the things that we know in the Sermon on the Mount. He helped them to understand the kingdom of God, to see things differently, to see his purpose and what he was about. His compassion led him to teach them to change their minds about things. Mark chapter 9 and verse 20. 20, Let's go from 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, Take pity, have spalagnizomai on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And Jesus commands the spirits to leave the boy and he is set free, delivered, released from what's been impacting his life because Jesus had compassion on him. And the last one is Luke chapter 7 and verse 13. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, again, a translation, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And he reached out to the coffin and he gave life to the boy. Do you see what's going on here? That Jesus deeply feels in all these different situations And he deeply feels enough to do something to transform the situation that's in front of him. And he also tells a couple of stories. In Isaiah, it talks about the fact that the Lord wishes to be gracious to us, to show compassion on us. If only we'll repent and come back to him. Jesus knows uh, his scriptures, as Phil was talking about last Sunday morning. And Jesus tells this story. He tells the story about the certain The son who wants to claim his inheritance in advance and to go away and live his life however he wants to live it. And he does exactly that. He wastes all the money. He has a kind of extreme party lifestyle. He ends up with nothing with the pigs. And eventually he says, I'm going to go home now. We know the story, don't we? And as he walks home, the father is waiting and it's at, this is at the heart of it all, isn't it? The father is waiting. And at that very moment where he sees his son, and actually Jesus says in the story, while he was a long way off, his father was filled with compassion. There's that word again. That gut-wrenching Compassion. that drives him to act in a way that is undignified, is unreasonable for a Jewish man of that time. That is actually unreasonable given the situation and how his son has treated him. But the gut-wrenching compassion makes him pick up his robes in an undignified way, run, which is completely undignified, towards his son to throw his arms around him. And that's the picture, isn't it? The picture of our Father in heaven, the picture of Jesus and what he is like, the compassion of his heart. Again, in Matthew chapter 9, we've read that verse. It says, When he saw the crowds and he saw that they were harassed, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Such a powerful image for us in our context here All over the place, no organisation, no feeding, no water, no pasture, no leadership, everything. He had compassion on them. His heart was broken for them. I think that's something that I've felt a little bit over these last weeks. I guess you have too. When you turn on the news and you see people Laying flowers in St Anne's Square. Just standing there, kind of vacant. Because, because how else are you supposed to respond? Or you see the people in London on London Bridge or Westminster Bridge a few weeks ago. And even the many young people, I know it wasn't just young people at their One Love concert last weekend. And you just, your heart goes out to them. Because... What's it rooted in? This anxiety and fear and chaotic leadership. That's not a political statement, by the way, it's just a statement. The uncertainty of how things are going to be, the uncertainty in our world. If you don't respond with a level of gut-wrenching compassion and a few tears then that means we don't feel anything anymore. Jesus looked and he saw that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion. You know what the thing was that he did at that point? He prayed. And the thing that he prayed was for the Lord of the harvest to send workers to the harvest field. That gut-wrenching feeling that he had for the people around him compelled him to call and send the disciples to spread the message of compassion forgiveness and healing and I think we've said this on every occasion this is about being a disciple of Jesus So whatever Jesus is like then we are to be like that if his compassion leads him to feed and heal and deliver and care for and teach then so should ours so should ours we are the ones called to be his hands and feet to be like jesus to feel like jesus to hear his heartbeat and respond to that jesus told a story of the good samaritan didn't he he says as he traveled along the road he came to where the man was when he saw him here we are again he had after three flag he had compassion on the man I don't think I've ever noticed that it was that word. It wasn't that he just thought he'd do a good deed for the day. Or that three people, sorry, two guys had already gone, he was the third one and he went, oh, I suppose I best do something. He had a gut-wrenching feeling inside him that said, do something. The challenge is there that it's to the outsider, isn't it? To the marginalized, to the victim, to the needy, to the hurting, to whoever in our life is our neighbor at any given point, to be like Jesus to them. Jesus is not a paired clawed lion. He is not a two dimensional cardboard cutout. He is not grey and beige. He is multicolored. He is not unfeeling, but passionately involved and feeling in the reality of your life, my life, our town, our world. He doesn't look at it through some filter where it all goes okay. He feels it deep within his heart for us. And he calls us to feel that too and to be his hands and feet, his presence, where he's put us to express the passionate love of Jesus, the passionate grace of God, the passionate compassion of our Lord in this world, wherever we find ourselves. Do you know him? Jesus, passionate one.